Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast. Today's episode is why the single lesbian mom is out and proud about her double donor conceived children. Today's episode is sponsored by First Response Pregnancy Test Brand. We know no one's journey to pregnancy is the same. First Response is there for you for all occasions when asking yourself, am I pregnant? Actress and entertainer Athena Reich, who's been called one of the best Lady Gaga impersonators, created a show called Art Birth just around the time that birth was on her mind. When Athena was in her mid-30s, she did what she says any clock-ticking lesbian would do, and she bought herself some sperm. What Athena didn't know at this time was that she'd also embark on a painful infertility journey that eventually led her to embrace the other side of third-party reproduction, egg donation. She never expected to get pregnant using a sperm donor and an egg donor. There was an amazing session about donor-conceived kids, and some people came, they had donor-conceived kids, and they talked about it, but they still had so much shame about it. They said, well, I haven't told anyone, or I only told my sister, or not even my mom knows, or, and I'm like, what, you know, haven't told their kids, like, all of this shame. And I'm like, why are you ashamed? And and that's just such a burden that you're carrying. And how could you not tell your sister or your friends? Like, why are you, you know, I'm not going to tell my kid until, or if it's like, for, for me, you know, growing up, coming out so young as queer, like you learn to be proud. As a proud single lesbian mom of two and a fertility advocate, Athena has a lot to share about all the unexpected twists and turns her path to parenthood took, what straight people can learn from the LGBTQ world when it comes to building a family with help, and why she's used her voice consistently to talk about her double donor conceived children. Athena, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And I love that intro was just like, reminded me of my journey. And I'm like, wow, I'm proud. <laughs> you should be proud. I mean, for anyone who follows you, you know, they now see two beautiful kids, but they don't know how much went into that. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. And it's so hard, truly, to summarize you in a short, you know, a few short words, because you are so dynamic. Your story is so dynamic. So what do you tell people when they ask you about how you created a family. I'm just so out and proud about it. And I say, oh yeah, well I used egg donor and donor sperm and cause I had infertility problems. And then about half the people like don't register egg donor and they just assume I mean sperm donor. And then when I make some comment later, no, no. Like if they say, oh, he gets that from you. I'm like, well, not really because it's a different egg. And they're like, well, what do you mean? You mean you used a surrogate? And I'm like, no, and I have to explain it. <laughs> You know, that's so true. I don't think people know the difference between... No, they don't really. No. And they don't know what the uterus does. Yeah. And I've... And I've exactly. Sometimes I just go right out and say, I use donor egg and donor sperm, but I carried the baby. I carried... The, the baby grew in me. Like, I have to say it three times. And still they're like, yeah, but the baby looks like you. I'm like, well, not really. <laughs> but you know, it's so interesting how people always want to find those connections right away when they meet your children. They're looking for it. And it's you know, it's sweet. Yeah. But it's also not how so many children entered the world. Yeah. I mean, of, of course, it's fine when they just mention it. It's interesting how people like don't get it takes them a while. A lot of people to understand that it's like not my egg. I have to sometimes repeat it. No, it was not my egg. No, not no, not my egg. Another woman's egg. <laughs> 
I'm so open. I'll like, hey, how you do? I'm a theater. Yeah, I'm a single mom. I'm infertility, uh, egg donor. Like, I say it within the first five minutes, it comes out. But to me, it's like so important to break the silence. That's why I do it. Which is why I've loved, uh, you know, every time we featured you, we once had you on a panel, of course, when we screened Vegas Baby at Pregnantish. And you've written essays for us. And your openness is such a breath of fresh air. And I know you know, part of your goal is not only to break the stigma of infertility, but also to talk about third-party reproduction and how great it's been for you. So yeah. what did you know about that when you started this process? Yeah, When did you hear about it? What did you know about it when you started? I was 36, which I thought was a pretty decent age to start. And, you know, just like one year of the big cutoff, they always talk about when things go exponentially downhill at 35, all the doctors have that. And it's it's true, statistically true. But right away, I got a blood test. And right away, like when my first appointment and then second follow-up, she was like, okay, you've got low ovarian reserve. This is what it is. And then go to a specialist. And the specialist right away said, you're probably not going to get pregnant with your own eggs. And I mean, the, to, to be now I'm such an advocate of it, but at the moment I was crushed. I was devastated. Like it was like a traumatic experience. It felt like all the doors in my life shut down. Part of living for me is having children. And it's always been that way in my head. Right. To tell me that felt like you're just taking away my whole experience of life. It almost felt like I wanted to die, you know, like, well, what's the point then if I can't have kids? And the donor egg thing just, I don't know. I just felt like you're just being negative. I just couldn't accept it. And it took me a while to come to accept it. But, you know, it was still worth it to try. I worked with an infertility coach, like a therapist who specialized in infertility. So she guided me through the whole process just one step at a time. And so by the time I did IUIs and my own IVFs, then I was ready. You know, you get basically you get sick of the miscarriages and you're ready. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think in year one or treatment one of a fertility treatment, you realize all the twists and turns and, you know, grief and losses and confusion that happens because at the beginning you think, well, yeah. I mean, you knew as a gay woman, sex won't make baby. You'll need a sperm donor. Yes. But for heterosexual couples, when they first learn that sex doesn't make baby, that's often the first big shocker. And then it's like, oh, if, you know, if I just do IVF or just do IUI yeah. or a fertility treatment, now it'll work. And then when it doesn't, which for so many people, it doesn't, especially right away, it's crushing. Yeah. So when you heard this, you were 36 years old. Where were you at this point in your life? What was happening? Well, I was... I had actually started going to, I was living in New York City at the time. I'd been there since like after university, I moved there. I'm back home in Toronto now. You know, I'm an actress, a writer, a singer, songwriter. And I just been like hustling, hustling, hustling. And I always knew I wanted kids. I definitely wanted a partner, but it just, I was in a relationship with a woman it didn't work out. And I was like, well, you know what? I am so sick of waiting for the perfect partner. Not that I needed it to be perfect, but you know, for the right relationship to have kids. I'm just so heartbroken that it keeps, I keep getting disappointed. I'm going to just have my kids and then have love come later. And so, yes. And then I just, the relationship broke up and I said, that's it. I can't wait another year to meet someone and wait another two years till we're solid enough to try to have kids. Like, I'm just going to do it. I started going to the gay center. They had a support group for queer women looking to conceive. And then when I, you know, and lo and behold, most of the people were getting, oh, on our first IUI, we got pregnant. Oh, it was our third IUI, but stick with it. 
And by the time I'm there doing a bunch of IUIs and it's not working and, you know, getting told all this stuff about my fertility chances being so small, I realized that I needed a different kind of support group. So that's when I started going to a resolve support group and trying to get, get my own therapist to support me. And that's when I saw how heterosexuals were experiencing infertility, sort of like different from LGBT people. Because yeah, I came out when I was a teenager and I was like, oh yeah, my mom was like, but I always pictured you having kids. And I said, oh, it's not going to change. I'll use a sper- sperm donor. I knew this as a teenager. So I did, yeah, I found a very big difference from how heterosexuals were experiencing it because to, that, to them, this was like the first thing, roadblock ever it, to having a family in a lot of cases was for me, I always knew it was going to be complicated, you know? Yeah. You always knew you needed third-party reproduction, fertility yeah. treatments. If you weren't going to adopt or foster, you knew that was a reality, but yeah. What do you think is the biggest misconception about being a lesbian and building a family? I mean, now that you, we know you've been in both groups. Well, I don't know. I just, you know, I had people just telling me the stupidest stuff because I was going through infertility, but here I am a single lesbian and people just kept telling me, well, just relax and it'll happen for you. And you know that that's so annoying when you're a straight couple. Well, it's ridiculous when you're a lesbian. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'll just relax. And like sperm's going to fly through the air. You know, just relax, have a bottle of wine, it'll happen. I'm like, and then where does the sperm come from? Because even that is complicated. And I had friends tell me, well, just go to a bar and find a guy and have sex. And there's so many things wrong with that. I, I can't even. First of all, I have low, my egg quality is shitty. Second of all, STDs. Third of all, what? Like blindsiding a guy with paternity? And then what if he sues me? And what is his problems? And, oh my God. <laughs> It is a funny exercise because all of us infertiles have gotten that advice. Take a trip to Tahiti, yeah. just relax, drink a margarita, it'll happen. And yeah. I wish it would cure my medical condition because it would have been a heck of a lot cheaper and easier, but it's not how it works. Yeah, but it unfortunately makes you feel like it's your fault, you know, and it just like something about you is uptight or tense and you're like, well, for sure I'm uptight and intense. I'm having like a, a, a crisis, a life crisis. You know, I want kids that it's not happening. It's going to be expensive and heartbreaking. And this is a crisis. So I am upset, but then don't take that upset and hold it against me. Let me be upset, you know? <laughs> Well, that's a big lesson in grief that we talk about a lot on this podcast, whether or not you're struggling with infertility or any other life challenge. Let me be upset. Let me grieve. You know, give me a minute. Don't try to solve it. And you mentioned something that's so true. You, You don't even realize that you're unintentionally casting blame on someone when you give those suggestions for their medical issue to be cured. Yeah. You know, think positively, won't cure a medical condition. So I can only imagine, but when you join this Resolve support group with heterosexuals after being in the LGBT plan family planning group, what were some of the differences and what were some of the similarities? Sure. You know, we know you've straddled both worlds and I think that's pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, there was no other queer people or really single people Oh, there was one other single mom by choice in the Resolve support groups that I was part of. Everybody, most people, even though it was New York, were heterosexual couples. And the biggest thing that shot out to me as a huge difference was shame. I was like, wow, these people have so much shame 
about the infertility you're going through. They're so embarrassed. There was an amazing session about donor conceived kids and some people came, they had donor conceived kids and they talked about it, but they still had so much shame about it. They said, well, I haven't told anyone or I only told my sister or not even my mom knows or, you know, haven't told their kids all of this shame. And I'm like, why are you ashamed? And, and that's just such a burden that you're carrying. And how could you not tell your sister or your friends? Why are you, you know, I'm not going to tell my kid until. For me, you know, growing up, coming out so young as queer, you learn to be proud. So I'm just like, why is everybody so ashamed of this? This is not healthy. It's not our fault. I didn't do anything wrong. This is just how it is. And in fact, what people are saying, the ignorant comments that the general public is giving me around my infertility is half of the pain I'm going through. If everybody could just understand this and, and uh, react to me appropriately, this would be halfway better. Like it would still be hard, but it'd be halfway better. And so I was like, but if, but they're saying these ignorant comments, not the people going through infertility, but other people, because they don't know about it and they don't know about it because of many reasons. But one of the reasons is everybody's in shame about it. Really, it's something we're trying to break at Pregnantish because, you know, being a sexual health writer, relationship writer, as I've been for years, and I've been on TV talking about these sexy themes like sex. Sex is, sex right. is pretty sexy. Uh, and then I came out as infertile a few years ago. And not that I was proud of it, but I was definitely vocal about it. It was a, a heck of a lot less <laughs> sexy, right. but it was important to me to be open about it. And that's a big, big part of our mission, not to hide behind our diagnoses. And, you know, I think there's an old expression that I often think about, which is if you bury your secrets, you bury them alive. They just manifest and come out so much worse for so many people. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's like because you have shame and then you come up with all these crazy ideas in your head that aren't true. But if you talk to other people, they're like, oh, that happened to me too. And I felt that way too. Totally. There's a release. And it's also what makes us authentically connect with people a lot of a lot of the time. Yes. Right? Our pain is a way to show people who we really are, what we really want. And I, for so many people, there's no greater value truly than creating a family. And I know, Athena, you mentioned that before. It was literally a part of your identity. So when your biology doesn't allow that to happen very easily... You have to find a different path. And that should be something that we really embrace that we, you know, it takes courage. It takes being bold, thinking outside the box. And like determined because so many, so many people say, oh, well, you know, it is what it is or what will be, will be. And, and it's like, you have to look inside yourself and say, do I really want this? Because if I do, then screw it. I'm going to get it. So when you were in your hardest moment, when you said you were crushed and devastated, you learned your treatments weren't working, your egg quality wasn't good, or you weren't producing enough eggs. At that point, what did you tell yourself or how did you get to that next level of pushing forward? I mean, I think so. there was so many different moments of being crushed along the journey. <laughs> so like there's the first moment, the second, the third. At first, I was just like mad because the doctor was also legitimately a jerk. So I had this extra thing, which is interesting to talk about, which is my health insurance in the States wouldn't cover IUI because I hadn't first tried for six months with a man. Right. That is maddening. How is it going to happen with a man when you're in a same-sex relationship? 
And I said, I have, I have a medical diagnosis from the doctor. We don't need to attempt this. I definitely have very low ovarian reserve. Here's my AMH numbers and everything. It's a real medical diagnosis. We don't need to try with a man. Plus I'm a lesbian. How is this going to happen? And they're like, sorry, we cannot cover your IOIs. Had I just had a partner and been having sex without a condom, which we would do if you wanted kids, I was just so mad at the whole system and feeling systematically oppressed, you know, and I was just so pissed. I had such righteous rage. So at first I just got through with my rage. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, and then later it was just, I don't know, there's just so many different things, but talking about it, because I remember I had so many, you know, when you're having pain and, and like emotional pain and shame, you come up with really weird theories. So I was like, well, maybe because I'm gay, I'm having infertility, maybe I'm too masculine, even though like I'm a femme lesbian, maybe there's something a little masculine about me. Really stupid theories, but you just, you feel like they're true. You just come up with weird theories about how you're being punished for this or that. Yeah, it's also you try to figure out if you only did this, maybe it would work, even though you're mad at people for making those suggestions to you and giving that advice. But you start to do that to, to yourself. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I remember we interviewed a transgender person on an earlier podcast, and he is very masculine, and yet he was fertile with eggs in his body. So things don't always match in terms of how they look mm -hmm. and what happens. Things don't always line up in a way outsiders would understand. Bad things happen to good people. And that's the hard reality. We want to assign blame and causality because we feel like it'll protect us. I totally agree. So what was your turning point in your process when you decided not to use your own eggs anymore and looked into both an egg and a sperm donor. So later when I was really despairing, when I had an eight week miscarriage, which I know people have way worse things than that, but no heartache is heartache. Yeah. I was really despairing about it. And then I had a moment where I said, well, maybe it's just not meant to be. And that's where my mom said, and I'd been determined the whole time, but I had this moment of, well, whatever, you know, and that's when my mom said, no, we just have to get you a baby. You need a baby. You need a baby. And we just have to get you a baby. <laughs> and that just really was it for me. I was like, okay, that's it. We're just going to get me a baby. And then I just made a plan and it was okay, fine. So we're going to do egg donor. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to do adoption and that's it. And it's going to happen either way. And that's when having a therapist who'd been through it really helped because she was like, you're hundred percent is going to happen for you because this is her life work. And she's like, if you don't quit, it's going to happen. It's just about if you're flexible with how. So that was... That was really good to have that hope. I used to always say to myself, and now I, I often say it to the pregnant audience, you don't have to know the where, the how, the when. Right. Uh, you just really need to know the what. Yeah. If you want to become a parent, it'll happen. It will happen. It will happen. Now, that might mean for some people, they run out of funds, they run out of time, they run out of patience, and they decide for many reasons not to become parents. And I think childless by choice I often say is a misnomer because they didn't really choose it. It became out of reach. And I get that. But for those who like you in your mid thirties, always dreamed of being a parent, hearing from your mother, let's just go get you a baby, which, you know, it's actually kind of funny because I think when people say just adopt, they, they think let's just go get you a baby. They think you're going to the corner store or something and yeah, yeah. taking a baby home. And we know processes like adoption take a really long time, but yeah. There is something freeing in a strange way about that phrase, let's just go get you a baby. I'm just, I'm going to get a baby. I don't know how or when, 
it's going to happen and I'm just going to make a game plan and I'm going to follow those steps until it's it's a reality and it's going to happen somehow. And goodness knows this infertility community is flexible even when we don't want to be. Our journey takes so many twists and turns and nothing seems to be in a straight line as we wait for those two lines on our pregnancy tests to show up. Pregnancy tests are a big part of this windy journey, and this is why I was so happy to partner with First Response Pregnancy Tests for this episode, because they support modern family building in this infertility community. They know how important these stories are so others feel less alone, and so we all feel supported as we hope and pray and wait for a positive pregnancy test. When asking yourself, am I pregnant? Am I really pregnant? With complete anxiety and excitement because you so badly want a positive result, first response is there for you. And so Athena, you said, let's just do it. I'm going to get a baby. And now now you have to find a sperm donor and an egg donor. That is a lot of looking. So what happened? How did you navigate that? Well, it was kind of fun because once I accepted it and the grief was gone, it was just like an art an art project. So I was just like, oh, I get to produce a human in a, a much more creative production-oriented way than just finding someone and falling in love and hoping that their crazy uncle genes don't transfer. You know, I just turned it into a total positive and I was like, oh, this is so fun. This could be better than even if I was straight and had sex with somebody because you know, I'm going to really pick who I want. And my my therapist encouraged me too. She was just go for anything you want. I'm like, is it superficial to want blue eyes? I have blue eyes. She's no, just do it. Like, who cares? Like, you deserve it. You know what I mean? Enjoy. Go for whatever you want, no matter how trivial it seems. And so, you know, for me, I just was like, okay, health is most important. Then intelligence. And then, you know, some sort of artistic talent, because that's what I have. And happiness. I'd watched this documentary called I forget happiness, I think, or whatever. And it's about how it's 50% genetic. So I was like trying to read into their essays about how happy they were. Is that what you saw in the donor profiles? And in each case, what did you get to see about them? So it's like a dating site plus more. And so sperm donors have a lot of info. So you can hear their voice, them talking. They write little essays. They do psychological tests. So, you know, they're introverted, extroverted, just like a whole lot of information, really descriptive. You see pictures of them either as kids or kids and adults. And with the egg donors, it really varies what country you're doing it in and what agency you're doing it at. But you usually see pictures of them either as kids or as adults. And then it's a little bit less information, the egg donors. So then I basically wanted to find someone who I thought was cute, but cute in the way that they look like they could fit into my family. So they could be my cousin, you know, because some people can be beautiful, but features are just too fine bone and we're more rounded or whatever. So then I just like mixed it with people who I thought, and then I put them, held them side by side. And I was like, well, these genes I think would make the cutest kid or whatever. And then I think it worked. So <laughs> <laughs> well, you make really cute kids because I've seen your kids. So what an amazing science experiment with, with art. Yeah. I mean, I understand that everything is genetics are weird and whatever, but I just was like, I'm just going to have the most fun I can with it. I get the choice. I'm going to pick the cute, you know, and then you have to deal with disappointment. You're like, okay, well, I kind of like this person, but I kind of don't like this. About Like nobody's perfect. Like you have to just at some point be like, whatever, she's good enough. I mean, nobody is going to be your genes. You think your genes are the best. No one's going to have your perfect everything that you, you know, your subjective opinion of your self and your family. You also just have to go whatever 
and then there's environment. The kid's going to be fine. You know, no one, they don't have to be exactly like our family. Well, it's interesting because in year five or six of trying to conceive, we didn't know if it was my eggs or my uterus causing the problem. We knew that Michael, my husband's sperm was okay. So it was likely something going on with me. And Mm. I started looking through egg donor registries, not knowing again how healthy my Mm. eggs were, because at that time we couldn't test eggs. And only now we're starting to develop technology around that. But I I found myself in those years or that year to be an extremely picky dater as I look through egg donor registries, because I'm looking through the donor profiles thinking, wow, she's really pretty, but is she, you know, is she smart enough or... I don't know if she's funny. I need someone funny. And I was so picky and I thought, oh my, I wonder if I would be like this on a dating site. But nevertheless, uh, you make a really good point that I think whether or not someone's gone through it, we can Mm -hmm. all relate to how high the stakes are. I mean, is there anything higher stakes than picking your donor profile? You're picking the genetic material of someone you're going to raise, someone who's going to be part of your family. It's Really hard. Like I suggest if you can getting somebody to do it with you. I mean, I guess most people are coupled so they can do it together. I had my mom help me. We made an Excel spreadsheet. So we put qualities on top and we rated everyone out of five. So the columns were intelligence, happiness, looks, musical, ta- musical talent, whatever, artistic. You know, so we just did that and then did that and then narrowed it down and printed out the pictures and just went, you know, narrowed it down to five and then went back to the doctor and said, of these five, like who's most fertile? And that was important. That's a, that's a nice trick to do. You can kind of, <laughs> depending on your doctor at the clinic that you're working with, whatever, you can take the five to 10 that you like and then just say, okay, you, you know, it's best to go with a known donor if you can, somebody who's had success before, like on the first try or whatever. So I did that and I was lucky that I have no problems carrying. So on both my kids, the first attempt was successful. Well, with with my second child, I had some leftover, I had one leftover embryo from the first batch and that actually did not take. So I had to get a new egg donor. So I had the same sperm with both both kids, but different egg donors. And so with both embryos you created with donor egg and donor sperm, you got pregnant. So what was that like? I was just so excited. I couldn't believe it. And I was like so happy. And I went to Europe when I was <laughs> six months pregnant traveled around, had lovers, safe sex with lovers in Europe. I mean, I just celebrated. (laughs) I went to Paris and Ireland and I just went on my own on this trip. Had this great Parisian, met this great Parisian woman and had this amazing all night love in Paris. It was great. Wow. So after all those tough years of infertility, you're now pregnant, you celebrate, you have a Parisian lover, (laughs) and you're feeling great. And, you know, you wrote an essay for Pregnantish. I will never forget it. I think it's a fascinating perspective. Um, You talked about how during your recent pregnancy, or maybe it was during your recent fertility treatments with hormones running through you, you craved or thought about hooking up with men? Yeah, every time I'm pregnant, I want men. Okay, we have to talk about this. No, not even pregnant, when I take estrogen. Okay, so let me get this straight. I just want to follow this. When estrogen hormones are flowing through you, whether it's fertility treatments or pregnancy, 
you suddenly feel like being with men, even though you've known for a really long time that you liked women. So what can you tell me about that? What do you think is happening? First of all, I've always identified as 80% lesbian. So I'm, I always feel attracted to men as well as women, but I never really want to settle down with them. They're just kind of like this fun thing to fool around with. And I'm like, thank you. That was fun. I'm bored now. So I, I'm always like lesbian-ish, right? That works for pregnant-ish. Yeah. But then something, when I was a teenager too, which I probably had a lot of hormones, I was like really into guys legitimately. And then, yeah, every time I take fertility treatments or I get a pregnant, I get ravenously hungry for men in this way that so overwhelmingly so that I feel like a teenage boy. I was in London and I'm watching a play pregnant, can't even focus on the play. I'm looking around. Is there someone I can hook up with in intermission? Looking around, do any guy will make eyes with me? I've never, I'm like a 17 year old boy. I can't think of anything else. I'm obsessed and I'm an actress. I should enjoy this theater in London. Hormones are a wacky thing. They make life fun or painful depending on where you're sitting. Yeah. So speaking of theater, And you as an actress, during your infertility struggles, during your losses, during the time you were looking through donor registries, everything you were going through at that time, were you on stage performing as Lady Gaga then? Oh, yeah. All the time. This is what was going on. I was going through this really crappy infertility and I went through like a, was it my miscarriage? And some friends came over and we were hanging out. They were comforting me. And then we were like, well, once I really am pregnant, what am I going to do? How am I going to perform? Because I perform at these corporate events as a Lady Gaga impersonator, which is a whole other wacky story how that happened to me. Then I do these private parties and I'm like, how am I going to do it pregnant? This is what I do. And then they were like, well, you just have to start doing baby showers and do her pregnant. And I was, that's hilarious. And we were, this was like my darkest time. You know, I went through this miscarriage and it was so, you know how it is with the miscarriage. It's the worst. And you're having a hormone crash and it's terrible grief. And we just started making up the funniest jokes. We're like, well, if Lady Gaga was pregnant, what would she do? When she throws up, it would be glitter and unicorns. And and when her water breaks, she would bottle it and sell it as perfume, you know? And so we just started making this humor that was so gross and outrageous. And it just really hit that dark, funny bone. And then it was just, oh my God, this is great. And so it, it just totally distracted me. And then I made this whole comedy show around, I started hitting some comedy clubs in New York, just a stand-ups as this pregnant Gaga car- character. And I have to tell people, like, sometimes I bombed and sometimes I didn't. It had more to do with the crowd and whether they were open to this crazy idea. And, and then I just developed it into this whole show. I had a friend at one point who helped me write it, and then we parted ways. And and then I have a, a friend here in, in in Toronto who helped me develop it further into a full musical. And we were just going to go to England on a Canada Council grant in March when COVID shut it down. So that's postponed, but it's turned into a huge show with backup dancers where Gaga's pregnant. She's a big birth and then she's a mom and how she copes with being a mom and postpartum Gaga. And it's just this really crazy comedy that you love or you don't. It's a lot of moms love it and gay men and you have to have a drink and it's it's disgusting, outrageous humor. So we're really excited to bring it to England. Cool. So your infertility journey led you to this outrageous show. I hope you could bring it to England soon. And I think it's very true that this experience of infertility and fertility treatments and science family making leads us all to very unexpected places. Um, you've often talked about what straight people with infertility can learn from the LGBT world when it comes to family building. What are some of the lessons that you would share? First of all, totally, you just need to come out of the closet. Shame is just holding you back. 
So be out and proud about your infertility journey because you will find, you will make friends and allies. You know, the more you share, you know, the more you share about how that you had a miscarriage, half the people you know had miscarriages and also hadn't told you. So that's number one. And number two is don't be afraid of the donor thing. I always knew I was going to have a donor kid through sperm. And, you know, it was a big step to, to for sure and uh, to go to my own eggs. And then when you do it, again, don't be ashamed. Tell your kid, talk to your kid early on because the research shows with adopted kids that they do well, kids who are adopted, they do well if you're just out about it and you tell them when they're young the story. And my kids already know about this whole donor thing. Like they barely understand it. I told them you have a donor, you know, and this is what I did. And it this is how you say it's very simple. You just say, I wanted you so bad. I love you so much. And my eggs, I had to get I got it. So I got another woman to give me her eggs because my eggs weren't so good. She had great eggs and a guy that gave me sperm. And then we a doctor put them together and I made you and I carried you. There's no shame. Amazing. And I know because I've been telling my daughter, she's not, you know, she's just now two years old. And I've been telling her for a long time that cousin Alana carried her. And I've literally changed books I've read to her. I've changed the words in the books because these children's books are not written with us in mind, us infertiles, or I'm sure in the LGBT world, sadly, you're kind of used to that. But I've had to change a script when I tell her because these books say, and you grew in mommy's belly. And I have to change that to you grew in cousin Elena's belly because I used a gestational surrogate, of course. And, you know, I'm trying to normalize it. And that must happen definitely for uh, people in gay, gay relationships. And they their kids know that they weren't created a traditional way, I imagine. So why is there any shame for us straight people who need third-party reproduction or fertility help? So I, I love that. Athena, I think your story just shows how magical some of the twists and turns that none of us ever expected can be. And is there anything else you want to add? Just to like people who are trying, I would say the best like advice is the worst, but the best advice I would say is just go and get your baby. Like just know that you're going to get it. It's just like what you already talked about, but don't give up hope. Hold on to hope and don't listen to that. If you care about this and you're upset, that means you want a baby. So just keep going If as long as you keep feeling that. I, I totally respect people who change and decide to be childless. I'm not saying that, but just keep the hope alive and keep persevering. And where there's a will, there's a way. And there's so many ways to get things. And there's like nothing more important. If you want this, then you need it. And that's your sign. Love that. Athena, it's been so nice to talk to you. You give so many important perspectives that I think are just not shared enough in the infertility world when we're storytelling. And as a single woman, as a lesbian woman, as a double donor parent, there are so many rich perspectives there. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you to the Pregnish audience for listening to another episode of our newish, I, I think we're still new, <laughs> podcast, where we explore modern family building. We talk about the realities of infertility. And through our guests, we show that when science meets family, well, some incredible things can happen. Thanks for listening.